Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Patty James, co-chair of the club's Health and Medicine Forum and chair of this program. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Stephan Guillenet. After earning his Ph.D. in chemistry at the University of Virginia, Dr. Guillenet completed a Ph.D. in neuroscience at the University of Washington, then went on to study the neuroscience of obesity and eating behavior as a postdoctoral fellow. He spent 12 years in the neuroscience research world studying neurodegenerative disease and the neuroscience of body fatness. His publications in scientific journals have been cited more than 29 100 times by his peers, uh, 2,100 times by his peers. Uh, Stefan's book, The Hungry Brain, available this evening, was released in February of 2017 and named one of the best books of the year by Publishers Weekly and called Essential by the New York Times Book Review. He's a senior fellow at GiveWell and a scientific reviewer for the exam Dot com Research Digest. He's the primary designer of an innovative course-based body weight management program called the Ideal Weight Program, which is part of the Human OS platform. Dr. Guillenet lives in the Seattle area where he grows much of his own food and uses his bicycle to get around and brews a mean hard cider. Welcome, Dr. Guillenet. Thank you, Patty. Thank you all for coming tonight. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about something that is very important to us as individuals, to us as a country, and in fact, as a species, and that is, why do we often eat too much? Here's an overview of what we're going to be talking about tonight. First, we will talk about what the problem is, and then we'll talk about the economics of eating. And when I say economics, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the cost-benefit decision-making process that happens in the brain around food. Next, we'll talk about the food properties that seduce us into eating and eating too much. And then we'll talk about the science of satiety. And finally, we'll talk about how these different factors have changed over the course of human history in such a manner that it um, favors excess calorie intake. Okay. You've probably all seen some version of this graph before. This shows the prevalence of obesity in the United States over time. And what you can see is that between 1960 and 2009, the prevalence has approximately tripled from 13% to 40%. And in fact, it has continued to go up since 2016. And if we go back further in history, what little data we have suggests that um, the rate of obesity has been increasing for a long time, probably for more than 80 years. And the reason why, at least the most basic reason why, is not a huge mystery. We're eating more calories than we used to. This graph right here shows calorie intake over time in the United States as measured by three independent methods. And I'm not going to get into detail about what each of these methods is. We can talk about that in the Q&A if you're interested. However, I do want to point out two things about this. The first one is that all three of these independent methods suggest that our calorie intake on average has increased over time. And the second thing is that the most accurate of these three methods, which is the one, um, the, the darkest line, suggests that we're eating about 218 calories more than we used to in the 1970s. So on average, the typical person is eating 218 calories more today than they would have back in the 1970s. So this is kind of interesting, right? Because, I mean, we don't want to be eating more. I mean, no one, no one sits down and says, I, I'm going to start eating 218 calories more. So why are we doing it? What's the explanation for this? And not only are we eating more calories, but the type of food that we're eating is not very supportive of our health overall. And this pie chart illustrates that by showing um, what types of foods our calories come from in the United States. So 30% of our calories come from unprocessed foods. 
things like meat and fruit, grains, vegetables. These are the types of foods that we should be eating. Um, 3% comes from processed culinary ingredients. This is like sugars and fats, butter, etc. 9% comes from more traditional, simply processed foods, things like cheese and sauerkraut and ham. And then finally, 58% of the food we eat comes from a category called ultra-processed foods. These are foods that generally are industrially processed, calorie-dense, and refined and ready to eat. So these are things like cakes and snacks and ice cream, pizza, soda. These are the types of foods that we should be eating less of, right? And we know we should be eating less of these. No one thinks that they're improving their health or their waistline by eating pizza or drinking soda, right? Yet these are the types of foods that make up the majority of the American diet. So why do we eat these foods that are not supporting our goals for ourselves, for our weight and our health? Why does our behavior betray our best intentions for ourselves? And these types of food, in case you're not convinced that they're not good for you, um, there was a recent study that was published by Kevin Hall's group that uh, a very tightly controlled study where they fed people two different diets each for a two-week period, either a diet composed entirely of simple, unrefined foods or composed entirely of ultra-processed foods. And here are the calorie intake data. The ultra-processed diet is the top line, unprocessed is the bottom line. It's calorie intake over time. And what you can see is that people spontaneously, without any instruction on how much they should eat, they spontaneously ate about 500 calories more per day on the ultra-processed food diet. Furthermore, unsurprisingly, their levels of body fat diverged. Um, when they were eating the ultra-processed diet, they gained fat. When they were eating the unprocessed diet, they lost fat. So most of us would probably prefer to be on the bottom line, the one that is losing fat, not the one that is gaining fat. Um, yet we choose foods that put us on that top line. At least, you know, most Americans choose foods that put them on that top line, even though we know perfectly well that these are not good for us. So what is it about our brains that drive our behavior in the wrong direction? What is it about our brains that cause us to undermine our own goals for ourselves, our own desires for our long-term health and our appearance, etc. That's the question that I'm going to try to answer today. And it's a big question, and there are many answers to it, and I can't cover all of those answers today, but I am going to cover some of the ones that I think are the most influential. So let's start with the economics of eating. And again, I'm not talking about money here primarily. I'm talking about the cost-benefit decision-making process that occurs in the human brain. So um, this is the broader sense of the word economics. The first thing we need to understand is that natural selection cares a lot about food. Animals that are more effective at acquiring food have more offspring than animals that are not effective at acquiring food. And because of that, over the course of millions of years, natural selection creates brains that generate efficient food-seeking behavior. And because the rules that govern efficient food-seeking behavior are relatively consistent, they can be modeled by scientists. And that has been done across a number of different species. And this is the basic model that they've come up with that has a lot of predictive value. Um, I call it the optimal foraging equation, and it's very simple. It's the value of a food item, and therefore how hard you should work to get it, how you should prioritize it over other food items, is equal to the number of calories that food contains minus the calories that you have to expend to acquire it and process it divided by the amount of time that you have to spend to get that food. So this is just the calorie return rate of the food. Very, very simple equation for calculating, for estimating the value of that food to the organism. And this is a really basic equation in economics. It's the same type of equation you would use to think about how you maximize your financial gains, but the same principles apply to acquiring food. And so this 
equation here is basically stamped into the brains of a wide variety of species, such that even though a lioness doesn't understand economics, doesn't know how to do math, she behaves as if she does. She behaves according to this equation. And it's not just non-human animals that behave in this way, it's also humans. And this has been demonstrated by research in quote-unquote wild humans, that is to say human hunter-gatherers who are living in a manner uh, similar to how our ancestors would have lived for the vast majority of our existence as a species. And um, this has been illustrated most clearly by the research of a researcher named Kim Hill at the University of Arizona. He has worked extensively with a hunter-gatherer group called the Ache in Paraguay. And what his research suggests is that energetic returns, in other words, the calorie return rate of foraging strategies is probably the best single predictor of foraging patterns. And this is really remarkable if you think about it. I mean, think about all the different feelings and motivations that we have that go into our eating choices. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that gets integrated into that, right? But despite that, you can still predict eating behavior in hunter-gatherers based to, to a fairly good degree based only on the calorie return rate of their different foraging options. And so that really highlights the importance, the critical and central importance of energy in eating behaviors. So it's not just non-human animals that have this equation stamped into their brain on a non-conscious level. It's also humans. And so if we go back to this equation, I want to decompose it into two basic concepts. One is the benefits of food. The benefit in this equation is the calorie value of food. And the second one is the cost of food. This is the uh, effort and time cost, basically. And of course, today we have money, which is an abstract representation of our time and effort cost. And the point I want to make here is that the human brain is always trying to optimize things, always looking for the most benefit for the least cost. And so whether you're negotiating for a salary for your job or you're, you know, shopping for electronics on the internet, the human brain is always looking for a good deal, most benefit for the least cost. And that's true across a wide variety of things, including in our eating decisions. And so what happens when food is a really great deal? When we have lots of calories that are available for very low time and effort cost? Well, this is a question that I asked to several anthropologists as I was researching my book. And here's what they told me. Kim Hill told me that in one sitting, he has witnessed Ache eating up to five pounds of fatty meat, and the fattier it is, the more they will eat, or 20 to 30 wild oranges, and these are similar in size and sweetness to the ones that you would buy at a grocery store, or 1.5 liters of honey. That's more than a third of a gallon. I mean, can you imagine taking like a jug, a milk jug, filling it up a third of the way, closer to 0 0.4, 0 0.4, 40% of a gallon, and then just, just chugging it. So that's, that's the kind of eating behavior that they engage in when food has a very high value according to this optimal foraging equation. In other words, very high calorie return rate. Herman Ponser worked with a hunter-gatherer group called the Hadza. They live in Tanzania. He told me they will sit down literally with a canful of honey and eat the whole thing. It's like taking one of those honey plastic bears that you get in the supermarket and drinking it like a glass of milk. Brian Wood, who's worked with the Hadza for many years, told me the Hadza fully embrace the idea of eat as much pure fat as you can possibly eat. There's no hint of moderation whatsoever in their drives and motives with eating food. So they will, when they kill an animal, they'll take the fattiest parts and boil them in a pot to extract and the bones and everything, extract as much fat and then just drink, drink the fat. And, you know, we hear this and we think, oh, that's terrible. This is gluttony. That sounds, you know, we have this negative valence reaction to it because of uh, our culture. However, to them, there's no downside to this. I mean, this is actually good for them. This is a positive thing to do 
because as a hunter gatherer, you have to work really hard to get food. You're exposing yourself to danger. You're exposing yourself to injury. And in general, you often don't get quite as much as you wanted. So you're often a little bit hungry. So when you have the opportunity to make up for that shortfall and get a ton of easy calories, you're going to take advantage of it. And that is good for you. That is going to help you to survive and thrive and reproduce in a challenging environment. And so I think these things, the traces of these selective pressures, they are in the brains of hunter-gatherers and they're in the brains of modern people. They're in the brains of all of us. So um, in the same situation, when food has a very high calorie return rate because it's calorie dense and it's very easy to acquire, I think that stimulates those same circuits in the human brain and uh, favors excess calorie consumption. So modern food... There's lots of calories available, lots of calorie-dense foods, so the benefits are greater. The effort and time and monetary cost is lower than at any time in human history, and therefore, according to this equation, the value of modern food is incredible. Modern food is a really good deal. And so I think that stimulates these economic circuits in our brains that, um, that are non-conscious and drive us toward excess consumption that we then have to struggle with and try to, you know, culturally stigmatize to restrain ourselves. So we call it gluttony and we think about it as a bad thing to try to control our own impulses. But I think this is precisely where those impulses are coming from. So where does this concept of value get computed in the brain? How does this work on a neuroscientific level? There's actually been quite a bit of research into this that's made quite a bit of progress. Um, and what that research suggests is that it is computed in a part of the brain called the orbital frontal, orbitofrontal cortex, excuse me. I have it highlighted in blue here, and a nearby region called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And basically what happens is this part of the brain is connected with many other parts of the brain. And it is receiving information about the benefits and costs of different courses of action. So, for example, how much is it going to benefit me to eat an apple versus eating a cookie versus eating nothing? So it's doing this cost-benefit computation and deciding what is the most beneficial outcome for me. And once it makes that decision, let's say you chose to pursue the cookie, then... Uh, the orbitofrontal cortex activates other brain regions that are involved in behavioral planning. So how are you going to get the cookie? You have to walk down the street, you have to pull your wallet out, you have to, you know, et cetera. There's a certain sequence of events that have to happen to acquire that cookie. And then after the plan is made, those brain regions activate motor regions of the brains that of the brain that actually execute the motor movements like walking and pulling out your wallet and putting the cookie in your mouth that actually allow you to execute um, that plan. And so this is the cascading series of decision-making, planning, and execution that underlies a lot of our behaviors. So to summarize, the calorie return rate of foods is a key determinant of eating behavior. Today's foods have an extremely high calorie return rate. This likely triggers excessive eating drive and orbitofrontal cortex and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex may be intimately involved in computing the calorie return rate. So now let's talk about how food seduces us. I want to go back to this equation and I want to highlight this variable of calories gained. Calories are kind of an abstract concept, right? I mean, what does that mean? What is a calorie? It's a quantification of the potential energy in certain types of chemical bonds that are found in the substances that we eat. So carbohydrate, fat, and protein predominantly contain those energy-yielding bonds. But, you know, the body doesn't really recognize calories per se. It recognizes specific compounds. So what exactly are we talking about here? What is the thing, what is it that the brain is actually looking for from food specifically. So here's how it works. When we eat food, 
that food first enters our stomach and then our small intestine. And um, in the small intestine, there are specialized cells that have receptors that detect the chemical composition of what you just ate. And those receptors are looking for specific things in your food. In particular, what they're looking for is carbohydrate like sugars and starches. They're looking for fat, protein, salt, and glutamate. And when those receptors are activated, what happens is they send a signal to your brain via a nerve called the vagus nerve. When it gets there, it gets to a place called the ventral tegmental area, which is this little dot here. And um, that and associated areas, and that is one of the primary areas in your brain that secretes a very critical substance called dopamine. And the place it secretes dopamine is into the ventral striatum and associated brain regions. And this is also called the nucleus accumbens. It's really, if there's a part of the brain that is most closely associated with motivations and cravings, and I'm talking about gut-level instinctive motivations. When you, you know, when you're craving food or uh, sex or gambling or drugs or whatever it is that you crave, that is associated with activity of the ventral striatum and associated brain region. So this is really critical for motivated behavior. And the more of the higher the concentration of these nutrients that's detected in your gut, the more dopamine you get in your ventral striatum. And what happens next, this is just another, uh, another way of showing the same thing, um, dopamine being released. What happens when dopamine hits your ventral striatum is basically two things. First of all, it motivates you to keep doing what you're doing. And so if you're eating a slice of pizza, maybe you're going to have three slices instead of just one. And the second, and I would say more important thing it does, is it causes you to learn. And to illustrate how this works, we're going to go back to an experiment that you've probably heard of by a man named Ivan Pavlov. And he did these experiments over 100 years ago. And his most famous experiment was, uh, first of all, he noted that, so he did experiments in dogs. He noted that when he would feed his dogs, they would salivate, right? And I mean, most dog owners know that their dogs will salivate, especially foods they really like. And they also get kind of excited, right? A lot of times dogs get really excited about food. And this is part of a digestive preparatory response. They're activating their digestive system to prepare to receive this food. And they get excited because they're also activating a motivational response to motivate them to acquire that food, right? So this is part of a response that their brain activates in response to that food cue to seek and eat and digest that food. However, he noted that when he rang a bell around them, it didn't do anything. It was a meaningless sensory stimulus. But what he did is he rang that bell consistently every time he fed them. And over time, they came to associate the sound of the bell with being fed. And then by the end of it, what he was able to do is just ring the bell alone and it would activate that salivation response as well as presumably, you know, the dogs would get excited because they knew that food was coming. But it's not just a cognitive thing. It's not like they just had this, you know, uh, high level realization. It, this is a very basic, um, this is a very uh, basic and non-conscious process that's regulating your digestion too, Right. I mean, most of you have probably had the experience of salivating when you smell a really delicious food. So this is not just a conscious response. This is very deeply rooted in the non-conscious brain that is controlling your physiology. And so it's the same way with humans as with dogs. When you eat uh, food that contains dopamine-stimulating nutrients, um, your brain remembers all the sensory cues that were associated with that food. So how did it smell? How did it taste? What was the texture? What was the appearance? The round pepperonis and the triangular slice and the greasy box. Where was the location? What was the situation? All of those things get stamped into your brain by the dopamine release, and they become cues that trigger your motivation to eat the next time you encounter them. 
So just like Pavlov ringing his bell that had been associated with that food, when you smell the smell of pizza or you see the side of that greasy box, that triggers your brain to start releasing dopamine again and you experience that motivation to eat. In other words, you experience a craving. And these can be very strong and they tend to be proportional to the concentration of these nutrients here in your food. And so this is the eating reinforcement craving cycle that drives a lot of our eating motivations and a lot of our eating behaviors. And there are a couple points I want to make about this. The first is that these nutrients on the upper right here, almost all of them are indications of the calorie content of that food. So the only one that does not carry calories is salt. That's the, the odd one out. The rest of those are indications of the calorie value of food. So again, we see that the brain is crafted to be very oriented toward acquiring calories, motivating you on a gut level, non-conscious level to acquire calories. The second thing I want to point out about this is that um, this happens for all foods. This is not just something that happens when you eat pizza or cookies or whatever. This happens when you eat an apple. This happens when you eat poached salmon. This happens when you eat salad with vinaigrette on it. This happens for all foods. It just happens to different degrees depending on the concentration of these nutrients. So if you eat a food that is very concentrated in these nutrients, which these ultra-processed calorie-dense foods tend to be, you just get more dopamine release. And when you get more dopamine release, you get more eating drive toward that food. And if you get a very high level of dopamine release and eating drive, it's going to drive you to eat too much. Another concept I want to attach to this is the concept of the bliss point. So we know that, you know, you might think from the last slide, you might say, well, why don't we just take shots of vegetable oil or, you know, spoonfuls of white sugar? Why, why don't people enjoy that? Um, and the reason is that there's an optimal concentration of these nutrients that is less than 100%. So if you think about if you're eating a, a steak, for example, if it has no salt on it, it's going to be kind of bland. If you add a little bit of salt, it's going to taste better. And if you keep adding salt and keep adding salt, it's going to taste better and better and better until you reach a certain point, an optimum, that's the bliss point. And then if you add more salt, it's going to start tasting worse and worse and worse until finally it's disgusting and totally unpalatable. And so because of this, because the optimal concentration is less than 100%, that means that you can hit multiple bliss points in the same food. So that means that the way to maximize your dopamine release presumably is to combine together different forms of dopamine releasing nutrients. And that to me explains why brownies are so amazing because you're hitting the bliss point for sugar. You're hitting the bliss point for fat. You're hitting the bliss point for starch all in the same food, which is not something that our distant ancestors would typically have experienced with simple unrefined foods that they were collecting from the wild. So these types of foods presumably release quite a bit more dopamine in our brains than the foods that our ancestors ate. And that creates a greater motivational state to eat them that reinforces, um, that causes us to eat too much, but also reinforces unhealthy eating habits. So if this is all true, then we should see that the, peop- the, the foods that are craved most commonly and the foods that people say they're quote-unquote addicted to should be foods that are calorie-dense combinations of different dopamine-stimulating nutrients. So there's been quite a bit of research that we can use to test this hypothesis. And uh, one of the leading researchers on food addiction, her name is Ashley Gearhart, and she um, did a study that I'm going to show you some results from, where she gave 120 American men and women a list of 35 commonly eaten foods. And she asked them to rank those foods according to, from top to bottom, according to which ones were most likely to trigger addiction-like eating behavior. So, and that has a few different facets, but a lot of it revolves around uncontrolled eating. So which foods cause you to lose control when you're around them? eat more than you intend to. 
You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So the cool thing about this is we can look not only at the top 10 foods on this 35 food list, we can look at the bottom 10. So we can see which foods are the most addictive, which foods are the least addictive, and what's the difference between those types of foods. So these are the top 10 here. (laughs) Number one is chocolate. This is pretty consistently the most craved food. Um, Then we have ice cream, french fries, cookies, cheeseburgers. I think you get the picture. These are all calorie-dense combinations of dopamine-stimulating nutrients. So not only do they have high concentrations of these dopamine-releasing substances, but they combine multiple substances together in the same food. So now let's look at the bottom 10. Apple, plain corn, salmon, banana, plain carrots, plain brown rice, water, plain cucumber, broccoli, plain beans. So these foods are lower calorie density, lower concentrations of dopamine-stimulating nutrients, and they combine fewer of those nutrients together. So there are some that do have some combinations. Beans, for example, have protein and, uh, and starch. Salmon has fat and protein. However, it's a lot more limited on the right side than on the left side, and the concentrations of these nutrients are a lot lower. A lot of these foods do not combine dopamine-stimulating nutrients like apples. All the calories come from sugar. Uh, Cucumbers and carrots really don't have any dopamine-stimulating nutrients, barely. Um, Brown rice is almost all starch. So there's a big difference. And the thing I want to point out here that I think is really fascinating is these foods on the right these are pretty healthy foods, right? I mean, these are the foods we should be eating. You could make a healthy diet out of just these foods on the right. But those aren't the foods that our brains want on a just instinctive, uh, you know, craving level. Those, that's not what we want. We want the foods on the left. And the reason we want the foods on the left and we lose control more easily with the foods on the left. And that's because I believe they stimulate greater dopamine release. So... The brain implicitly values fat, sugar, starch, protein, salt, glutamate, and especially combinations of those. Those substances spike dopamine, reinforce behavior, and enhance eating drive in proportion to their concentration. And that shapes our food preferences over time and contributes both to poor food choices and to overeating. So now let's talk about the flip side of this. Let's talk about satiety. So satiety, just to define that, is basically a fancy way of saying fullness. It's that feeling and it's that loss of eating drive that causes us to terminate a meal. And there are a couple of things that I want to say about this before we start into this section that are really important to understand about satiety. The first thing is that, you know, intuitively we kind of think about satiety as that point where our stomach fills up. You know, like you eat until there's no more room left in your stomach and then you're done. But the truth is that our stomachs are a lot bigger than we think. There's usually a lot of room left in your stomach at the end of a meal. So what's really happening is that your brain regulates satiety and there's a certain point at which your brain just says that's enough. And it creates a, uh, a feeling that causes you to not want to eat anymore. And so understanding how that process is regulated, I think has a lot to tell us about why we eat too much and how we can eat, how we can control our food intake more easily. The second thing I want to say is that satiety is a major determinant of how many calories we eat, because that is the thing that determines our meal size. That's the feeling that tells us when we stop our meals. Should we stop it now or should we stop it after we eat 500 more calories? So it's very impactful to our calorie intake. And here's how it works in a nutshell. When you eat food, that food enters your stomach and it begins to stretch your stomach. 
your stomach lining contains stretch receptors uh, that measure the volume of what you ate. That food then travels into your small intestine, which is lined with receptors that detect the chemical composition of what you ate, carbohydrate and fat and protein. And those signals from the stomach and the small intestine and other parts of your digestive tract travel along a uh, nerve called the vagus nerve up to the brain and specifically a landing point in your brainstem called the nucleus tractus solitarius or NTS. And basically what the NTS does, I call it the satiety center. It integrates all of these signals, these complex signals ascending from your digestive tract. It integrates them into a satiety signal. So with every bite you take, that satiety signal gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And eventually when it gets strong enough, it shuts down your eating drive and you don't want to eat anymore. The food doesn't taste as good anymore you feel uncomfortable and you go do something else. So a really critical point that I want to make here is that not all foods generate the same level of satiety per calorie. So this system is actually not very closely tied to the calorie content of what we eat. And this was demonstrated by a study uh, published in 1995 by Susanna Holt and colleagues. What they did is they fed volunteers uh, 38 different commonly consumed f uh, foods, all of them in equal calorie portions. So 240 calories each of 38 commonly consumed foods. And then they simply measured how full those people felt over a two-hour period after eating each of those foods. And what they found is that basically those foods broke down into two categories. Uh, one of them is here, and this is basically ultra-processed foods that, you know, uh, calorie-dense, uh, refined convenience foods that we were talking about earlier, things like croissants. Croissant was the, le the least filling of all foods. Uh, cake, ice cream, chips, white bread, those types of things were not very filling per unit calorie. And then on the other hand, we have lower calorie density unrefined foods. So lentils, whole grains, meat, fish, fruit, potatoes were actually the most filling food per calorie. And uh, so there were huge differences in how filling these different foods were, even though the number of calories was absolutely identical. And so this is pretty interesting, right? I mean, this is a powerful intervention point uh, for us to modify our own calorie intake while, you know, not feeling any less full. And um, the, so they went further and they, they asked the question, what is it about these foods that determines why some foods are more filling than others? And they were able to identify a few very simple food properties that explain the majority of it. And the first one is calorie density. So just to walk you through this graph, we have the satiety value on the vertical axis, and then we have the weight of each food on the horizontal axis. So remember, all these foods had the same calorie value. So the foods that weigh more are basically foods that had more water in them. So like the fruits and the meats and things like that, oatmeal, and as opposed to like the uh, croissants and the candy bars and things like that, that were a lot more concentrated. And so when you eat a food where the calorie value of it is diluted by water and fiber, it, for the same number of calories, it stretches your stomach more. It fills your stomach more. And so those foods that had a lower calorie density or higher weight slash volume were more filling per calorie. And that was a very strong relationship. Just as strong as calorie density was palatability or how good a food tastes. So, and this shouldn't surprise any of us that, you know, when a food tastes really good, we want to eat more of it. And so the better it tasted, the less filling it was per calorie, sadly. <laughs> um, protein, the more protein it contained, um, the more filling it was per calorie. And finally, fiber, the more fiber it contains, the more filling. And these four properties explained the majority of the differences in satiety that people experienced across all of those different foods.
So when you eat foods like these on the left, these calorie-dense, highly palatable foods that, for the most part, not always, are low in uh, protein and fiber, you have to eat a lot more calories before you reach that satiety point that tells you to terminate your meal. And most people use satiety as their shutoff point for their meal. I mean, most of us just, this is the way that humans intuitively interact with food. We sit down and we eat till we're full and that's what tells us to stop. So if you're doing that and you're eating these foods right here, you're going to eat a lot more calories and not feel any more full than if you were eating these foods on the right. However, the foods on the right, you're going to end up eating many fewer calories before you reach that point of fullness. So to summarize this section, satiety is a major determinant of meal size. It's related to specific food properties like calorie density, palatability, fiber, and protein content. Low satiety foods favor overeating, and high satiety foods favor a lower calorie intake without making us feel hungry. So now I want to talk a little bit about how these things have changed over the course of human history. So how have these variables that I've been talking about changed in such a way that has favored a higher calorie intake over time? The first thing I want to talk about is how through the progress of technology and affluence, we have gradually concentrated the quote-unquote active ingredients in food. And what I mean by active ingredients is the ingredients that cause dopamine to be released in our brain. And this is what humans do. I mean, if you look at, I think actually cocaine is a great example. The coca plant is a uh, plant that was traditionally, is still today, traditionally chewed in South America as a natural mild stimulant, kind of like drinking a cup of coffee. But if you take the substance in that, that, that causes your dopamine to go up and you concentrate it, you get cocaine. And then if you uh, chemically modify that so it crosses your blood-brain barrier really fast, you get crack cocaine. So essentially, technology has allowed us to release more and more dopamine, turn a, uh, a substance that was once a uh, natural and constructive part of uh, these people's culture into a life-destroying drug. And so... This has happened for a lot of food ingredients. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not trying to say that food is as bad as crack cocaine, but um, I think it's analogous. It's, it's qualitatively similar, if not quantitatively. So we've been cooking meat for over 100,000 years, maybe even a lot longer than that. And this was the original source of glutamate in our diet. Glutamate is that meaty umami flavor that we associate with cooked meat and bone broth and soy sauce and MSG. But about 20,000 years ago, we figured out how to make pots. And that allowed us to boil bones to make bone broth, which is a more concentrated source of glutamate than cooked meat. 2,300 years ago, again, through the progress of technology, food processing technology, we figured out how to make, both in the East and the West, how to make fish sauce and soy sauce. And that is a much more concentrated source of glutamate that we could add as a flavoring to other foods. And this historical process culminated in the isolation of pure crystalline monosodium glutamate in 1908 by a... Uh, Tokyo Imperial University researcher named Kikune Ikeda. And so through the course of history, we have concentrated the active ingredient in cooked meat in such a way that we have gained the ability to increase the seductiveness of food and also lost a lot of the properties of that food that creates satiety, like the water and the protein in that meat. And this is not just something we've done for glutamate. We now have crystalline sugar, we have pure starch, we have purified fat, we have crystalline salt. All of these dopamine-releasing nutrients we have purified through technology into their purest, strongest, most dopamine-releasing forms that we now combine freely in these incredible combinations. And so... Um, and the consumption of these foods has increased over time, too. If we look at added fat intake... That's approximately doubled over the last century. This is not total fat, by the way. This is added fat. So this is things like oils and butter and lard, etc. 
it doesn't include the fat that is naturally part of foods like milk and meat and nuts and that sort of thing. Added sugar intake over the last century has increased by about 50%. And if we go back further, all the way back to 1822, it's increased by 20 fold. So there are huge increases in the consumption. And, and of course, you know, back in 1822, the reason that people didn't eat a bunch of sugar, it wasn't because they were health conscious, it was because sugar was expensive. It was for rich people. So the progress of affluence and technology has allowed us to consume more of these substances. And not only are we consuming more of these substances, but we're surrounded by food cues that get our dopamine spiking and remind us of these foods. So the average American sees 20 food ads per day on television alone, and the average adolescent sees about 16. And so the food industry spends billions of dollars a year on food advertising because they know that it works. I mean, putting images of food in front of us stimulates our motivation to purchase and consume those foods. That is an effective strategy because of how our brains work. And so not only um, have the benefits, you know, the benefits of food increased, but the costs, according to the optimal foraging equation, have declined. So we have outsourced a lot of the time and effort cost of food preparation. This graph shows the proportion of our food spending that we have spent on food eaten at home versus away from home between 1889 and 2009. In 1889, 93% of our food spending was on food that we consumed at home. Generally, we were buying uh, single ingredients and preparing those foods from scratch at home. Whereas in 2009, about half of our food expenditure was on food to be consumed at home, and the other half was consumed away from home, with about 18% of that going to fast food. And I think this actually conceals the magnitude of the change because a lot of the food that we eat at home these days is actually ready to eat food. So we're not actually, in many cases, we're not actually cooking this food at home. We're just buying it at the grocery store and then reheating it or pouring it into a bowl or, you know, that sort of thing at home. So I think this actually greatly underestimates the magnitude of the cultural change that we're talking about here. So food is just more convenient today. You know, maybe we used to eat toast and eggs for breakfast. Now the food industry has given us Pop-Tarts. We used to pack, you know, sandwiches for lunch for our kids, and now we have Lunchables. So we've outsourced the time and effort cost of food to other people. And um, as I mentioned before, money is an abstract representation of time and effort cost, and the financial cost of food has plummeted as well. So, you know, we like to complain about how expensive food is, but the truth is it's never been so cheap in all of human history. In the United States, in 1930, we used to spend a quarter of our disposable income on food. Today, we're spending about 10%. Of course, I know it's a little more expensive in San Francisco. Um, Okay, so the take-home points are that the modern world is just too good at giving the brain what, has, what it has evolved to want. So concentrated fat and sugar and starch, protein, salt, and glutamate stimulate us to overconsume, and low time and effort and financial cost of food contributes as well. Paired with that, frequent food cues remind us of food and trigger our eating desire, and... Um, the fact that the food that we are eating or that I, I guess that many people eat is calorie dense, refined and palatable means that we tend to overconsume when we do begin eating that food. So um, essentially a lot of these problems have come through a mismatch between the way our brains are designed and the modern food environment, which is very unlike how we evolved. And I think that a more ancestral diet and food environment, in other words, eating simple, unrefined foods, not having uh, you know, food cues surrounding us all the time, may provide more appropriate cues to the brain circuits that regulate eating and help us control our excess food intake without depriving ourselves too much. So 
I'd like to thank some of the researchers whose work contributed disproportionately to this uh, talk. Of course, there are many, many researchers whose work went into this, but these are some of the biggest ones. If you enjoyed this, you can find more of my writing at uh, my website, stephanguiena.com. I'm active on Twitter, at WHSource. And of course, my book is The Hungry Brain. Thank you. We have, we have some questions. This works, right? You, okay. I'm trying my best on some of these to read people's handwriting. Sometimes <laughs> it's not that easy. I, what, well, I, sorry, I can't read the second word. What do the USDA, I think it's dietary guidelines, um, play in the obesity ep- epidemic? What? What role, probably? Probably role. Yeah. What role do the USDA, yes. Um. I think that, you know, this is a question that it's impossible to answer with absolute certainty because we can't rerun history and, uh, you know, do it with, uh, we can't run a a randomized controlled trial where we do different types of guidelines and see what happens. But um, personally, I don't think the obesity epidemic has a whole lot to do with the uh, dietary guidelines. I mean, I think people like to point to this association where the guidelines were adopted and obesity rates began to go up. Um, But we've been getting fatter since a long time before the guidelines. Certainly there was an uptick in the rate that roughly corresponded to that. Um, But I think inferring cause and effect is a, is a pretty big leap. Um, And if you read the guidelines the the original 1980 guidelines were actually pretty sensible. I mean, Basically, they told people, don't eat too much, you know, don't eat a lot of fat, don't eat a lot of sugar, uh, eat mostly unrefined foods. So, um, like, don't eat white bread and sugar as much, uh, get some exercise. They, they weren't really that, you know, I, I don't think, I think they're fairly consistent with the best information that we have today. Maybe not perfectly consistent. I don't think a low-fat diet is necessarily optimal for everyone, and you know that was certainly something that they emphasized. But I think that if you look at the foods that Americans are actually eating, they're a lot worse than what the dietary guidelines recommend. I mean, people are eating really unhealthy foods on average in the United States. If people had followed the letter and spirit of the guidelines, they would have been eating a largely unrefined diet lower calorie density, and I I think probably we'd be better off. Okay. Is the price of food, especially processed food, artificially low because of agricultural subsidies, which affects the monetary cost-benefit analysis? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, the answer is yes, but only a little bit. Because the truth is that the proportion of the cost of processed foods that derives from the commodity itself is very small. So when you buy Pepsi or Doritos or whatever, the amount of what you pay that comes from the actual corn that's in that is like pennies. So, you know, even though those pennies are, you know, maybe it's two pennies instead of three pennies, but it's not making a really big difference in, uh, in the cost of those foods. That said, I mean, you know, these calorie-dense processed foods generally are relatively cheap. They're not as cheap as eating rice and beans, but they're cheap enough and tasty enough and convenient enough that I think those three things together make them quite compelling. Okay. Um, This question is, I was surprised to not see alcohol, beer, wine, on the calorie... um, Come... Come, I don't know that was your question. What's that word right there? Yeah, it wasn't listed on the uh, consumption. Consumption of the, in the American diet. Is that uh, true that it doesn't um, come? Uh, oh, good. I should have everybody type these. Uh, a meaningful amount. So um, you, should you ask your own question or did I get the gist? You did, you did well. I did well. Okay. Beer um, wine. <laughs> yeah, it does contribute a meaningful amount. And yeah, it's interesting you say that because <clears throat> I didn't notice that actually, but alcohol is not on there. Yeah, I'm not sure why they didn't include that. Um, but um, I'm not sure exactly how, what percentage of our calories come from alcohol, but 
that is certainly a meaningful source of calories that I didn't discuss. And um, it's actually really interesting because there are, um, you know, I didn't talk about this in this talk for time reasons, but drugs actually play a pretty significant role in our calorie intake. So alcohol is one. And, and drugs, you know, the reason we enjoy alcohol and caffeine and theobromine and chocolate is because those act on the dopamine uh, system. Those are habit-forming drugs because they activate the dopamine uh, system. <clears throat> and so the reason chocolate is the most craved food generally um, in these surveys that they do is because not only is it super calorie dense, combines sugar and fat, but it also has this habit-forming drug called theobromine. And so that's like this really compelling package for the brain. But the same applies for beer. You know, beer, first time a kid tastes beer, I don't know if, if you remember the first time you tasted beer as a child, most people thought it was just horrible, right? It's bitter. But once your brain learns to pair that bitterness with this dopamine stimulation, suddenly that bitterness becomes pleasant. Same way it does with coffee. Also, caffeine is a, is a habit-forming drug. Coffee, you know, kids generally hate coffee. Adults come to enjoy it through that, that Pavlovian process of associating the, the flavor with the, with the drug. And so... Between chocolate and alcohol and the cream and sugar we add to coffee and tea, I think that is another reason why we tend to overconsume. I think you just answered this next question too. Uh, what about inhalation, disinhalation? I, I think I'm reading those words correctly. By other dopamine sources such as alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, opiates. Is that what you just answered right there, do you think? Um, I'm not sure. It depends on what the... the first words were oh inhibition oh okay. i'm sorry yeah yeah yeah, oh, yeah. okay okay there you go. so you're saying like if you are disinhibited from drinking alcohol how does that affect your food intake yeah that's right um so certainly for alcohol well for, for both alcohol and cannabis um so yeah and, and it's actually very common for drugs to have effects on food intake and body fatness so for alcohol um, alcohol disinhibits you. So it tends to, um, you, you lose your self-control. So if you told yourself you weren't going to order fries, you probably will order fries. Um, and it also actually stimulates hunger according to some studies. So it's this double whammy, um, that causes us to have late night snacks. Um, but not to mention the fact that the alcohol itself is quite caloric as well. And then, um, Cannabis is kind of an interesting issue. So certainly acutely for most people, it does stimulate food intake. Um, but if you look at long-term studies, people who consume cannabis regularly tend to actually be leaner. And I'm not sure why that is, whether that's because eventually the effect reverses, like chronic use is different than short-term, or maybe it's just that a certain type of person uses cannabis that tends to be lean already. I'm not really sure what explains that. Um, but yeah, and then there's cigarettes. Nicotine is an appetite suppressant and it suppresses body weight. And actually, I think this is probably one of the reasons for the obesity epidemic is that smoking rates declined considerably. Um, so basically, what I think is part of the explanation is through the uh, you know 60s and 70s, we weren't as big as we otherwise would have been because people were smoking so much. And now, you know, our culture has changed dramatically around that. Smoking rates have declined by three quarters approximately. And uh, in, in terms of cigarette per capita, it's declined by like three quarters since the 70s. And if you overlay the curve of per capita cigarette consumption going down and obesity going up, it's like a perfect match. I'm not saying that accounts for everything, but I think it's probably a contributor. Okay. The last question, and then I'll close out the program, and then we'll go sign the books. This question is, is it the gut or the brain that causes the time lag between eating too much and feeling too full? Is it the gut or the brain that causes the time lag? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I, I really don't know the answer to that. 
Okay. <laughs> 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 Maybe we should end on on uh, one that. Can I ask a question on that yeah, list? Yeah, sure. The the what foods not to eat? What is reconstituted meat and fish? Yeah. Um, I actually don't know the answer to that either. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't come up with anything. What is spam? I mean. Oh yeah. No, maybe that's it. Yeah. Like bologna, like where okay. they just take little pieces. Oh yeah. That must be it. Yeah. Like hot dogs or things where it's like. That was the only one I could. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That must be it. All right. We figured it out together. We did. <laughs> okay. Well, there's, um, oh, I need this gavel thing again. Here we go. So, um, so three calf. Okay, well, anyway, yes, the bottom line is we want to thank uh, Dr. Guinea for his comments here today. We also thank our audience here, as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 114th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you.